If you want to open up with me to Acts chapter 4, we'll be looking there to God's Word this morning. Well, if you were with us last week, you saw that we began a series where we are looking at the five solas of the Reformation. And we began last week by looking at the first one, sola scriptura, or scripture alone. That it is the foundation of all that we believe as Christians, that God has revealed himself and the way of salvation in scripture alone. We saw that it is the only certain and infallible and certain rule of all faith and practice. It's the only means by which we might know the way of salvation found in Christ. And we saw that even though nature reveals the glory of God, it proclaims His handiwork, we have the law written on our hearts that daily accuse us and bear witness to our sin, yet those things are insufficient to bring us to salvation. For that, we need God's special revelation, His supernatural revelation, His Word alone. And that's what we talked about last week was our need for Scripture alone, that it alone reveals salvation to us. But what Scripture reveals about salvation is the next question. Okay, we agree that Scripture alone is where we go to to find salvation, but what does it reveal about salvation? Where is salvation to be found? How are sinners made right before a holy God who is the one mediator between God and man? And as we will turn now to the second solo, which is solos Christus, or Christ alone, we will see that He alone, the incarnate Son of God, is the only Savior of sinners. Christ alone is the only Savior of sinners. And that even though some would say that He is simply a good teacher, He is just a good moral instructor, others would say that maybe He was a healer, or He is one way of salvation among many. We would disagree with those that say that. There are others that might even say Christ is important, that He is necessary, or even that He is central, but they would not confess that Christ alone is enough for salvation. It is Christ plus something else. Christ plus our works. Christ plus Mary and the intercession of the saints. Christ plus our good works and our merit. Christ plus something else. Christ can still be central. He can still be necessary, but all these other views see Christ plus something else added. And this was the case during the time of the Reformation when these principles really started to take shape, right? There was all these other views out there. There were multiple mediators. There were works being added to the work of Christ. And so the Reformers came along and saw the necessity to confess, no, Christ alone. <laughs> not just central, not just necessary, but Christ alone is able to save sinners. And even though we know that that was the case back then, we see that it's no different than in our day. The necessity to preach and proclaim Christ alone. You go out today and you ask people, how is someone saved? They might say something like, yes, I need to believe in Jesus, but I also need to do good works. I also need to do these other things in order to merit salvation. Or, you know, maybe and if you're not Catholic, you know, 
we're not as tempted to pray to Mary and the saints, but maybe there's, in our day, a tendency to need to be around this special person, this person that's anointed, then I can get the special blessing, and then I can really have my prayers answered, maybe then I can really merit salvation before God. But my hope today is that we see that all these fall short of what the Scriptures teach, that Christ alone is our only hope of salvation, and that everything we need for our salvation is found in Christ, in His finished work. There's nothing outside left to be completed or done by us. He has done everything necessary for our salvation. And that this is the real glory and significance of His resurrection and what we come to remember as we remember Christ's resurrection. He has finished the work. His resurrection, his resurrection vindicates that work. And all we need to do is believe and trust in Him for salvation. And so we're going to look today at a passage. We're going to use it sort of as a jumping off point for talking about this principle and doctrine. And we see in Acts chapter 4, as we come to this passage, that this is taking place after Christ's death, after His burial, after His resurrection and ascension, and after the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost. Now, we don't have time to go into it in detail, but in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John had healed a lame beggar who had been lame for 40 years, and they make him able to stand in an instant. They say, silver and gold we do not have, but what we do have in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. So this, this causes crowds to follow around them, to gather around them. Peter preaches a message and he tells the people that it's not by our piety, it's not by our power that this man was made well, but by the power of the risen Lord. That it is Christ alone that is to be proclaimed and preached, not the power and piety of any person. And as we'll see in our passage this morning, the religious leaders seek to arrest Peter and John, they seek to question the apostles. By whose power did you do this? By whose name did you do this? How are these things possible? Why are you proclaiming this message? And we'll see that the answer that Peter gives is the resounding answer of Christ alone. So I'm going to read our passage this morning. I'll pray for us, and then we will look to God's Word. I'll begin reading at verse 1, going through verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. And as they were speaking to the people, that is Peter and John, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Ananias the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, 
Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, and has now become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your holy and infallible Word. The special revelation that You have given to us, Your people, by which we might know the way of salvation found in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And as we come this morning to remember all that He is do- all that He has done, all that He is doing, and all that He will do to complete the work of salvation, we thank You and praise You and glorify You for what You have done for us in Christ. And as we come this morning to Your Word, looking to Christ alone, we pray that by the power of the Spirit You would come to have these truths revealed to us, illumined to our hearts that we might see the truth of Scripture, see salvation found in Christ alone, by faith alone, and come to rest and receive Him for our salvation and nothing more and nothing less. We pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, we'll be looking at three different things this morning as we look to God's Word. We'll be looking first at Christ, the only way of salvation. Christ, the only way of salvation. Secondly, we'll be looking at Christ revealed in all the Scriptures. And thirdly and finally, we'll be looking at Christ, the resurrected Lord. Christ, the resurrected Lord. We come first to Christ, the way, the only way of salvation that we see in the book of Acts up to this point, um, the first four chapters, that after Christ's life, His death, His burial, His resurrection and ascension, He has poured out His Spirit upon His church, empowered them to proclaim the message of salvation, right? Christ died, He was buried, He rose again on the third day, And He ascended into heaven. He poured out His Spirit upon His church, empowering His church to proclaim the message of salvation. And that's what we see in our passage. Peter proclaiming the message, the one way of salvation. And it's kind of interesting to think about. The last time we really hear Peter speak in the Gospels is him denying our Lord three times, right? He's asked by a small slave girl, do you know Him? And he calls out, no, I do not know him. (laughs) So Peter here, who formerly denied our Lord and cowered, is now boldly proclaiming this message of salvation. And we see that it's only by the power of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, that he is able to do this. And he's boldly proclaiming this message of salvation. And he says it like this in Acts chapter 2. He says, repent and believe the gospel right? Be baptized to have your sin forgiven. Have your guilt removed to have your bodies washed and cleansed to be purified to receive the gift of the Spirit. 
to take away your heart of stone, to be given a new heart of flesh, to be saved from the coming judgment, and to receive salvation and eternal life. This is the message that Peter is proclaiming in the book of Acts. But what's so unique about Peter's proclaiming is that this salvation that he's preaching, this salvation that he's proclaiming, is not found in ourselves. Peter's not proclaiming the message of self-help, self-improvement. You just need to make yourself a little bit better by your efforts and your ability. You can be made right with God. No, what Peter is proclaiming is actually outside of ourselves. It is found in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. That the good news, that the gospel that is being proclaimed is that salvation has been accomplished. That redemption has been made. That forgiveness of our sins has been purchased. That reconciliation with the Holy God has been secured. Eternal, everlasting resurrection life has happened. Okay? That it's not found in vague spirituality. It's not found in multiple ways to God. It's not found in our piety, in our effort, in our works or our power, but in a person in the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected and ascended Savior. And that is what Peter is proclaiming in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. That Christ is the exclusive Savior of sinners. Christ is the exclusive Savior of sinners. That there are not multiple ways or multiple paths to God that lead to salvation, but there is one person that is able to save, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he says in verse 12. He says, salvation is found in no one else. (laughs) Salvation is found in no one else. What does Jesus say in John chapter 14, verse 6? He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That Christ is the only way of salvation. He is the alone Savior of sinners. That the stone that was rejected has now become the chief cornerstone. And we see Peter's emphatic emphasis here, right? He doesn't just say there's no other way of salvation. He says there's salvation in no one else. Why? Because there's no other name. (laughs) It's a double negative. There's no other salvation and it's found in no one else because there's no other name. We see here Peter being in fact emphatic about this, that there's no other name under heaven given among men by which anyone may be saved. But we see here that this is not only that saying that Christ is the alone Savior, but that salvation is found in Him and Him alone. What do I mean? It is not Christ plus our works, our effort, our power. It is not Christ plus the intercession of Mary and the saints. It's not Christ plus all we can do, but Christ and Christ alone. This is how sinners are made before, right before God. Uh, I thought this was helpful. John Calvin said this, our whole salvation and all of its parts are comprehended in Christ. <laughs> our whole salvation and all of its parts are comprehended in Christ. 
And we must take great care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. (laughs) Right? So not only is Christ the alone Savior, but it's found in Him and Him alone. No additions, no subtractions. And this is not just saying His name, maybe in a sinner's prayer. It's not just knowing generally about who Jesus is, but it's faith in His person and in His work. Not vague spirituality or vague familiarity with Jesus, but a true saving trust and confidence that He is able to save, that He has completed the work of salvation. This is what our catechism will call receiving and resting on Christ alone for salvation. This is saving faith. And that there is only one way anyone can be saved, and it's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that brings up an interesting point for us this morning. And if you're thinking in your head along these lines, then you're thinking correctly. If Christ is the only name by which anyone is saved, what does this mean for Old Testament saints? Right? How were people in the Old Testament saved? How was Abraham saved? How was Moses saved? How was David saved? If there's only one name, how are these people saved? Are they saved in some other way other than Christ alone? That brings us to our second point this morning, Christ revealed in all the Scriptures. Christ revealed in all the Scriptures. That as you go through the book of Acts and you see what's being done and you look closely at what Peter is preaching, at what he is proclaiming, it's important to note two things. The first thing is this, there was no New Testament on the day of Pentecost, right? They only had the Old Testament scriptures when Peter was proclaiming and preaching. Kind of interesting to think about. The second thing to note is that what Peter is proclaiming is not something radically new, but is in fact something very old. That what Peter preaches, what Philip preaches, what Paul will go on to preach in the book of Acts, and rather all the apostles, what they proclaim is not a radically new message. It's not one that no one had ever heard of. Not some totally new innovative plan of salvation that was completely foreign to the people, but rather what was proclaimed was the fulfillment of all that had been promised in the Old Testament Scriptures. That that which the law and the prophets had promised, salvation and redemption from sin, has been accomplished fully and finally in the Lord Jesus Christ. That which was promised has been fulfilled. That if you just look at the first four chapters of the book of Acts, you will see that the work that Christ has done is being described not as a new thing, but as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. What do I mean? You could go to Acts, Acts chapter 2. Christ pouring out of the, of the Spirit is a fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. Jesus in His descent into Sheol and His resurrection from the grave is the fulfillment of Psalm 16. 
His ascension and his current session is a fulfillment of Psalm 110. That's all in Acts chapter 2. You go to Acts chapter 3. Christ's substitutionary suffering is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53. We read that this morning. His kingly, priestly, and prophetic office is a fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter 18. The offspring of Abraham that blesses all the nations, a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12. Acts chapter 4, the righteous cornerstone that is rejected is a fulfillment of Psalm 118. And we see the anointed Christ set on Zion's holy hill is a fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2. That's all within the first four chapters of the book of Acts. So what is Peter doing? He's preaching Christ from the Old Testament. He's preaching Christ as the fulfillment of all the Scriptures. Time would fail us to show the rest of the Old Testament pointing to the work of Christ. You could go to Genesis, the first promise of the serpent crushing seed of the woman. You could go to Exodus, the perfect Passover lamb slain so that death might pass over his people. You could go to the book of Leviticus, the great high priest that will mediate perfectly for his people. The book of Numbers, the fiery serpent lifted up on a wooden pole so that all that were poisoned by the venom of sin, might look to Him and live. You could go to the book of Deuteronomy and see Christ as the true Israel who perfectly obeyed the law and took upon Himself the covenant curses. That's just the first five books of the Bible. We could be here all day talking about all that the Old Testament did to promise the Christ who was to come. All of these things are pointing to the person and work of Christ not only showing the climactic fulfillment of the Old Testament, but the Christ-centered nature of all the Scriptures. This is what Christ has done. This is why Jesus can say in the Gospel of John, Moses wrote about me. <laughs> Nobody else can say that. Okay? Anybody else that says that, run away from them. Okay? If anybody says the Old Testament's about me, you run. Okay? But Jesus can say, Moses wrote of me. <laughs> that Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad that all the Old Testament saints were looking forward to Christ. The book of Hebrews makes this clear in Hebrews chapter 11. It says that Moses considered the reproaches of Christ greater than the riches of Egypt. And so we see here that the Old Testament saints look forward to Christ as we look back to Christ and Him crucified. That ever since the fall, there has only been one mediator between God and man, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That there is not another way of salvation in the Old Testament. It has been and always will be Christ and Him crucified. The promised seed of the woman, the better and last Adam, has come. <laughs> what was promised at the beginning has now been fulfilled. That one has done everything that the first Adam failed to do, perfectly obeying the law of God, never failing at any point, the only righteous one for whom the gates of righteousness open, as we read in Psalm 118, the one who has entered God's Sabbath rest for his people. But as we see in our text, not only has Christ perfectly obeyed the law in our place, and, and done what the first Adam failed to do, 
but he also takes the judgment and the curse incurred by the first Adam. Right? He doesn't just come and fulfill all righteousness, but he comes and suffers perfectly. In his incarnation, in his crucifixion, he takes our misery, our death upon himself, bearing the wrath of God by his death upon the cross, taking the judgment in hell that we deserve, that our sin deserved, suffering in the place instead of sinners. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And that because of this work, he is able to do something very peculiar, right? Because he perfectly obeyed, because he perfectly suffered, he's able to do something that no other priest could do, no other king could do, no other prophet could do. He's able to reconcile us to God. What does 1 Peter say? Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ, that removes our condemnation and our guilt, justifies us before a holy God, will bring us to glory. It is Christ alone. He is the only one that can do this. Promised in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New. But as we see, there's only one way that this salvation can be applied to us. There's only one way that the salvation that Christ accomplished, His finished work, can be ours. His justification, His righteousness accounted to us. That brings us to our third and final point, Christ the resurrected Lord. Christ the resurrected Lord. That the only way that this salvation that Christ won is possible, the only way that it can be accounted to us is not by our works, not by our self-improvement. It's not by having our good deeds outweigh our bad. It's not saying, well, I did slightly more good than bad, therefore God has to save me. It's not by our power. It's not by our power, piety. It's not by our effort. But it is by union with the resurrected Christ and faith in His finished work. That is the only way that this salvation that Christ has won can be credited to our account. That it is only by union with Him, being united to Him in His life, in His death, in His burial, and in His resurrection, that anyone can be saved. That it is only by faith in His finished work that someone can be justified that someone can be forgiven of their sin, that their guilt and iniquity can be removed, that their condemnation can be taken away, that they can be given a new heart, enter God's Sabbath rest, and enjoy the glorious new creation. Why do I say that? Because so often we're taught that it's by our works. Maybe Jesus got the ball rolling. Maybe He got the ball started. But it's up to us to fulfill the works of the law to complete this salvation, right? It's somehow up to us. It's by our white-knuckled obedience that we can really obtain final salvation. That by our good deeds, or maybe Christ's good deeds plus ours, that's how we can be saved. Christ is a good example, but it's ultimately up to us. 
And I think what's so crucial for us to see this morning, especially as we remember Christ's resurrection from the grave, it is that it's only because of His life, His death, His burial, and His resurrection for us and for our salvation that we have hope. And it's only by being united to Him by faith that we enjoy the benefits that He won. What do I mean? It's absolutely necessary that sinners are united to Christ in order to receive all that He's done by faith. Or we could say it like this. Union with Christ in His finished work is the inexhaustible fountain of all saving blessings. How do I receive the benefits Christ won? How do I obtain righteousness? It's not by my effort. It's by you being united to the One who was perfect. By being united to Him by faith, we receive the benefits that He won and accomplished. And I'll just point out seven of these this morning as we think and contemplate what it means to be united to Christ by faith. That being a Christian <laughs> means that we're united to Him. That His death is our death. His life, our life. What do I mean? First, we see this. That we are united to Him in His perfect life. That by faith, His perfect righteousness is imputed and credited to our account. This is one benefit of being united to Christ. Secondly, we see that being united to Him means we are united to Him in His sacrificial death. What does Paul say in Galatians chapter 2? I have been crucified with Christ. This is the language of union. His death is our death. We are also, Paul calls us, buried with Him in baptism, which pictures our death and burial with Him. We also see pictured in baptism our resurrection to newness of life. That just as Christ was raised in His resurrection, union with Him as the freedom from condemnation. We read that in Romans chapter 1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the language of being united to Christ. Union with Him means the promise of new creation. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Not will be, not after he's done enough work, but is a new creation. And finally, in 1 Corinthians 15, we see the promise of glorious future resurrection. That Christ's resurrection from the grave on the third day in His glorious body is the first fruits of our resurrection. Paul will go on to say this, For as by one man came death, by one man has come the resurrection from the dead. <laughs> For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And we see here the port important dichotomy that's set up in the Scriptures. We're either united to Adam as our federal head, under the law as a covenant of works, unable to obtain righteousness, left and dead in our sins and trespasses, unable to keep the law, and without God and without hope. Or we are united to Christ, <laughs> our federal head who represents us before God, the one mediator between God and man, 
Not under a covenant of works, but under the covenant of grace, where God gives us the benefits that Christ has won that we could never earn. So we're either united to Adam under the covenant of works, or we're united to Christ in the covenant of grace. What does Paul say in Galatians chapter 4? In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. Born, under, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That the eternal Son of God, the second person of the triune God, takes upon Himself our nature, takes upon Himself our duties, being born under the law, and also takes upon Himself our liabilities, is punished for our sin and our transgression. Why? So that we might receive adoption, united to Christ and put into the family of God, that Christ alone is able to save. And we can say again with Calvin, the whole of our salvation and all of its parts from beginning to end is comprehended in the person and work of Christ. Nothing can be added. Nothing can be taken away. And as we sing in that great song, salvation's work is His from first to last. There's nothing left for us to complete. All we need to do is trust and believe in the finished work of Christ. But I think this morning we might be tempted to think in this way. Maybe some of you are thinking this morning, I see what you're saying, that Christ is the only Savior. And I see what you're saying, that He has power and ability to save. And I don't doubt His ability to save. I doubt His ability to save me. That I see Christ, He's powerful, He's great, He's glorious. I don't doubt His ability to save, but I doubt His ability to save me. You don't know the sin that I've committed. You don't know the things that I've done in my life. I have too much sin for Him to forgive me. I have too much shame, too much guilt. There's no way that He could forgive a sinner like me. And I think that this, for Christians even, this is the temptation that we can be tempted to doubt the work of Christ for us. And I think sometimes we can feel like Joshua in Zechariah chapter 3 the great high priest that's standing before the Lord and he's clothed in filthy garments. He's standing before the holy God of the universe in filthy rags, covered in sin and iniquity, unable to clean himself up, unable to make himself worthy before a holy God. And we see Satan stands there next to him, ready to accuse him, ready to bring every sin that he's committed straight to the forefront. And the truth is that in and of ourselves, we stand condemned. We are just like Joshua the high priest before a holy God in filthy rags. Our works as filthy rags, our righteousness as stained garments, our good deeds as soiled vestments. We cannot save ourselves. But the good news of the gospel of grace is that Christ did not come to call the righteous but He came to call sinners to repentance. Not those who are well, but those who know just how sick they are. Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, it's not those that are well that need a physician. It's those that are sick.
There's a great hymn that says this, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness He requires is to feel your need of Him. You cannot clean yourself up before you come to the Lord. There's nothing that you can do to be made right before a holy God. All that you can do is realize (laughs) that you do need to be cleansed. You do need to be washed. You do need to be made right. And so the call this morning is to run to Christ. (laughs) Run to Him. He alone is the Savior of sinners. He is the one from Zechariah chapter 3 that takes upon Himself our filthy garments and says, remove them from them. Place them on Me. Taking upon Himself on the cross our sin, our iniquity, our guilt, suffering in our place, and by His perfect righteousness, close us with his pure vestments. (laughs) What does he say? I will clothe you with the pure white vestments, the white robes of the righteousness of Christ. Or as one song says, his robes for mine, a wonderful exchange. (laughs) That's what we have in the gospel. His robes for ours, a wonderful exchange. And that it's only when we see this that we can really see the significance and the glory of Easter, of resurrection, of what Christ has done. That it's not just a story about a man who died and rose from the dead, but it's the hands on which all of history turns and our salvation. All other religions boil down to this. Be good and maybe God will save you. But Christianity says none is good. No, not one. Actually, there is one. (laughs) It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And by faith in Him, we can be made right. Christ has accomplished everything. The God-man has done everything that we could not. There is one mediator between God and man, and all we need to do is reach out the soiled hands of faith that say, I need salvation. I need forgiveness. I need redemption. Not to work for our salvation, but to receive and rest upon Christ alone. He will not fail. He is indeed risen, ruling, and reigning. The work is finished. Praise be to God. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for the infinite mercy that You've poured out on us in Your Son, that the perfect and eternal Son of God, the One who knew no sin, became sin for us on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God. There's no other way, there's no other name by which we may be saved, by which we may be reconciled to our Creator and made right before a holy God. It is only the Lord Jesus Christ who took our sins upon Himself and gave us the righteousness that He secured, His perfect robes, for our soiled garments. And we praise you and thank you this morning that you have done it. You have finished the work of salvation. There's nothing left for us to do except live out of gratitude and thankfulness for all that you've done. 
And this morning, Lord, as we're tempted to trust in our works, in our ability, tempted to doubt your ability to save sinful people like us, may we remember that that great picture of justification in Zechariah chapter 3, his robes for ours, and that it's only by faith that we can enjoy these benefits that Christ has won. That being found in him, being united to him, and grafted into him, we have everything that Christ has won. Help us this morning to trust and rest in Christ. And as we come to the supper now, may we remember that we are united to him in his person and his work, his broken body, his bloodshed for our sins. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.